Chapter 5 of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Taking it by and large, as the sailors say, we had a pleasant ten days run from New York to the Azores Islands. Not a fast run, for the distance is only 2,400 miles, but a right pleasant one in the main. True, we had headwinds all the time and several stormy experiences, which sent 50% of the passengers to sickbed and made the ship look dismal and deserted. Stormy experiences that all will remember who weathered them on the tumbling deck and caught the vast sheets of spray that every now and then sprang high in air from the weather bow and swept the ship like a thunder shower. But for the most part, we had balmy summer weather and nights that were even finer than the days. We had the phenomenon of a full moon located just in the same spot in the heavens at the same hour every night. The reason of this singular conduct on the part of the moon did not occur to us at first, but it did afterward when we reflected that we were gaining about twenty minutes every day because we were going east so fast. We gained just about enough time every day to keep along with the moon. It was becoming an old moon to the friends we had left behind us, but to us Joshua's it stood still in the same place and remained always the same. Young Blucher, who is from the far west and is on his first voyage, was a good deal worried by the constantly changing ship time. He was proud of his new watch at first and used to drag it out promptly when eight bells struck at noon, but he came to look after a while as if he were losing confidence in it. Seven days out from New York he came on deck and said with great decision, This thing's a swindle. What's a swindle? Why this watch? I bought her out in Illinois and gave a hundred and fifty dollars for her and thought she was good, and by George she is good on shore, but somehow she don't keep up her lick here on the water. Gets seasick, maybe. She skips, she runs along regular enough till half-past eleven, and then all of a sudden she lets down. I've set that old regulator up faster and faster till I've shoved it clear around, but I don't do any good. She just distances every watch in the ship and clatters along in a way that's astonishing till it's noon. But them eight bells always gets in about ten minutes ahead of her anyway. I don't know what to do with her now. She's doing all she can. She's going her best gait, but it won't save her. Now, don't you know, there ain't a watch in the ship that's making better time than she is. But what does it signify? When you hear them eight bells, you'll find her just ten minutes short of her score, sure. Well, the ship was gaining a full hour every three days, and this fellow was trying to make his watch go fast enough to keep up to her. But as he said, he pushed the regulator up as far as it would go, and the watch was on its best gait, and so nothing was left him but to fold his hands and see the ship beat the race. We sent him to the captain, and he explained to him the mystery of ship time, and set his troubled mind at rest. 
this young man asked a great many questions about seasickness before we left and wanted to know what its characteristics were and how he was going to tell when he had it he found out we saw the usual sharks blackfish porpoises etc of course and by and by large schools of portuguese men-of-war were added to the regular list of sea wonders some of them were white some of them brilliant carmine color the nautilus is nothing but a transparent web of jelly that spreads itself to catch the wind and has fleshy-looking strings a foot or two long dangling from it to keep it steady in the water it is an accomplished sailor and has good sailor judgment it reefs its sail when a storm threatens or the wind blows pretty hard and furls it entirely and goes down when a gale blows ordinarily it keeps its sail wet and in a good sailing order by turning over and dipping in the water for a moment seamen say the nautilus is only found in these waters between the thirty-fifth and forty-fifth parallels of latitude at three o'clock in the morning twenty-first of june we were awakened and notified that the azore islands were in sight i said i did not take any interest in islands at three o'clock in the morning but another persecutor came and then another and another and finally believing that the general enthusiasm would permit no one to slumber in peace i got up and went sleepily on deck it was five and a half o'clock now on the raw blustering morning the passengers were huddled about the smokestacks and fortified behind ventilators and all were wrapped in wintry costumes and looking sleepy and unhappy in the pitiless gale and the drenching spray the island in sight was flores it seemed only a mountain of mud standing out from the dull mists of the sea but as we bore down upon it the sun came out and made it a beautiful picture a mass of green farms and meadows that swelled up to a height of fifteen hundred feet and mingled its upper outlines with the clouds it was ribbed with sharp steep ridges and cloven with narrow canyons and here and there on the heights rocky upheavals shaped themselves into mimic battlements and castles and out of rifted clouds came broad shafts of sunlight that painted summit and slope and glen with bands of fire and left belts of somber shade between it was the aurora borealis of the frozen pole exiled to a summer land we skirted two-thirds of the island four miles from shore and all the opera glasses in the ship were called into requisition to settle disputes as to whether mossy spots on the uplands were groves of trees or groves of weeds or whether the white villages down by the sea were really villages or only the clustering of tombstones of cemeteries finally we stood to sea and bore away for san miguel and flores shortly became a dome of mud again and sank down among the mists and disappeared but to many a seasick passenger it was good to see the green hills again and all were more cheerful after this episode than anybody could have expected them to be
considering how sinfully early they had gotten up. But we had to change our purpose about San Miguel, for a storm came up about noon that so tossed and pitched the vessel that common sense dictated a run for shelter. Therefore we steered for the nearest island of the group, Fayal, the people there pronounce it Fayal, and put the accent on the first syllable. We anchored in the open roadstead of Horta, half a mile from the shore. The town was 8,000 to 10,000 inhabitants. Its uh, snow-white houses nestled cozily in a sea of fresh green vegetation, and no village could look prettier or more attractive. It sits in the lap of an amphitheater of hills, which are 300 to 700 feet high, and carefully cultivated clear to their summits, not a foot of soil left idle. Every farm and every acre is cut up into little square enclosures of stone walls whose duty is to protect the growing products from the destructive gales that blow there. These hundreds of green squares marked by their block lava walls make the hills look like vast checkerboards. The islands belong to Portugal, and everything in Fayal has Portuguese characteristics about it. But more of that anon. A swarm of swarthy, noisy, lying, shoulder-shrugging, gestulating Portuguese boatmen with brass rings in their ears and fraud in their heart climbed the ship's sides, and various parties of us contracted with them to take us ashore at so much a head, silver coin of any country. We landed under the walls of a little fort armed with batteries of twelve and thirty-two pounders, which Horter considered a most formidable institution, but if it were ever to get after it with one of their turreted monitors, they would have to go move it out to the country if they wanted it where they could go and find it again when they needed it. The group on the pier was a rusty one, men and women and boys and girls all ragged and barefoot, uncombed and unclean, and by instinct, education, and profession, beggars. They trooped after us, and nevermore while we tarried and failed did we get rid of them. We walked up the middle of the principal street, and these vermin surrounded us on all sides and glared upon us, and every moment excited couples shot ahead of the procession to get a good look back, just as village boys do when they accompany the elephant on his advertising trip from street to street. It was very flattering to me to be part of the material for such a sensation. Here and there in the doorways we saw women with fashionable Portuguese hoods on. This hood is of thick blue cloth attached to a cloak of the same stuff and is a marvel of ugliness. It stands up high and spreads far broad and is unfathomably deep fits like a circus tent, and a woman's head is hidden away in it like the man's who, who prompts the singers from his tin shed in the stage of an opera. There is no particle of trimming about this monstrous capote, as they call it. It is just a plain, ugly, dead blue mass of sail, 
and a woman can't go within eight points of the wind with one of them on. She has to go before the wind or not at all. The general style of the capote is the same in all the islands, and will remain so for the next ten thousand years. But each island shapes its capotes just enough differently from the others to enable an observer to tell at a glance what particular island the lady hails from. Well, the Portuguese pennies, or rays, are prodigious. It takes one thousand rays to make a dollar, and all financial estimates are made in rays. We did not know this until after we found it out through Blucher. Blucher said he was so happy and so grateful to be on solid land once more that he wanted to give a feast. Said he had heard it was a cheap land and was bound to have a grand banquet. He invited nine of us, and we ate an excellent dinner at the principal hotel. In the midst of the jollity produced by good cigars, good wine, and passable anecdotes, the landlord presented his bill. Blucher glanced at it, and his countenance fell. He took another look to assure himself that his senses had not deceived him, and then he read the items aloud in a faltering voice while the roses in his cheeks turned to ashes. Ten dinners at six hundred rays, six thousand rays. Ruin and desolation. Twenty-five cigars at one hundred rays, two thousand five hundred rays. Oh, my sainted mother. Eleven bottles of wine at one thousand two hundred rays. That's thirteen thousand two hundred rays. Be with us all. Total, twenty-one thousand seven hundred rays. The suffering Moses. There ain't enough money in the ship to pay that bill. Go, leave me to my misery, boys. I'm a ruined community. I think it was the blankest-looking party I ever saw. Nobody could say a word. It was as if every soul had been stricken dumb. Wine glasses descended slowly to the table their contents untasted. Cigars dropped unnoticed from nerveless fingers. Each man sought his neighbor's eye, but found in it no ray of hope, no encouragement. At last a fearful silence was broken. The shadow of a desperate resolve settled upon Blucher's countenance like a cloud, and he rose up and said, Landlord, this is a low, mean swindle and I'll never, never stand it. Here's a hundred and fifty dollars, sir, and that's all you'll get. I'll swim in blood before I'll pay a cent more. But spirits rose, and the landlords fell. At least we thought so. He was confused, at any rate. Notwithstanding, he had not understood a word that had been said. He glanced from the little pile of gold pieces to bluchers several times, and then went out. He must have visited an American, for when he returned, he brought back his bill translated into a language that a Christian could understand. Thus, ten dinners, six thousand rays, or six dollars, twenty-five cigars, two thousand five hundred rays, or two dollars and fifty cents, eleven bottles of wine, 
13,200 rays, or $13.20. Total, 21,700 rays, or $21.70. Happiness reigned once more in Blucher's dinner party. More refreshments were ordered. End of Chapter 5 Recording by B. Scott Holmes, bscottholmes.com